0: Isaiah said that a day would come when the Torah would go forth from Zion. How is that prophetic vision beginning to unfold in the world and how can you be part of it? We'll be discussing that today on Messiah Podcast with First Fruits of Zion founder and director Boaz Michael as he shares the miraculous story of the origin of First Fruits of Zion. Messiah Podcast is brought to you by Messiah Magazine, a free publication available in print or online at messiah
1: Put your hand in mine together. We will walk in harmony. Let me introduce you to my teacher, the rabbi from the Galilee.
0: Welcome to Messiah Podcast. My name is Ryan. My name is Ruben. And we are excited about our conversation today with First Fruit Design founder and director Boaz Michael. Hey Ruben, this is gonna be
1: a fun and meaningful conversation today. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Actually, why don't you tell our audience why we feel it's important for Boaz to come on and talk to today about the founding of First Fruits.
0: Thanks Ruben. This is a really, I think, important conversation. The the, the story of the founding of First Fruit Design, it's really full of miracles and details that demonstrate God's blessing and guidance for this organization. I think it's important for our listeners to hear what God did to get First Fruit Design in motion and how he's using the organization today really to bring the Torah forth from Zion. I think that many of our listeners are not only gonna be encouraged, but I think folks are gonna feel a connection to the story and journey and mission of First Fruit Design and how God is using First Fruit Design and our Torah Club leaders and students and friends to build his kingdom.
1: Yeah, awesome. All right, well, let's go ahead and bring on Boaz. Sounds good.
2: If you want to know the Jewish Jesus, Don't miss out on a free subscription to Messiah Magazine, where you'll discover his life and teaching, learn about the biblical festivals, and get connected with Israel. Subscribe for free at messiahmagazine.org. Messiah Magazine is a free donation-supported quarterly publication of First Fruits of Zion.
0: Hey Boaz, this is great. Uh, We're getting to do this interview today here uh, in my hometown of Atlanta. So it's good to be with you in person. So uh, tell our listeners, what brings you uh, to town all the way from your home in
3: Jerusalem? <laughs> well, it's been a long route here. Uh, we're, <laughs> we're here in Atlanta. We're continuing our Shalom tour throughout the United States. Uh, we're coming in on the tail end of it. We're now nine weeks into a 16-week tour. So we have uh, five weeks left on the road and um, we're glad to be here in Atlanta for a few days. It's always a blessing to uh, be able to sleep in the same location for more than two nights in a row.
1: On the Shalom Tour, I know one of the things you've been talking about is how First Roots of Zion is a prophetic movement. And to make that point, you've been sharing about the miraculous way in which First Roots of Zion began. I actually did hear parts of the story. I don't know if I heard the complete story, but I think it's amazing for what I have heard. And I think our listeners would love to hear is Why don't you share with us how it all began? How did First Roots of Zion begin?
3: Sure. Well, first of all, Ruben, I'm not sure if I'm going to tell you all of the story today. We got, to, <laughs> we got to keep some secrets. Um, now, listen, it's a. Uh, hey, well, that's what we want to hear. We want to hear the secrets, the good stuff. It is a miracle. But hey, before I jump into the, the beginnings of First Roots, which really began um, in 1992-93, I want to step back 2,000 years because it's very important that our uh, listeners don't think of uh, the advent of First Roots of Zion as just another way of interpreting the Bible. You know, we've had interpretations throughout the centuries of new thinkers and new scholars, new leaders coming and saying, hey, this is the way that we should read the Bible. And they create a new sect or a new way of approaching their faith. Um, I think it's very critical that we understand and see ourselves within the wider context of God's redemptive story that has revelation is con- his concealed revelation is con- continually being revealed more and more and as we get closer to that advent or that time in which king messiah comes establishes his kingdom rules and reigns from jerusalem that of course the revelation of his disciples will will grow as well um, and i think this is important as i'm on the shalom tour I i i want to preempt the question well what about my relatives that were faithful servants of Hashem? What about my friends and my family and my grandma that were faithful and devout, devout followers and they sought God, but they never understood things this way? Were they wrong? Were they in error? What's the status of their salvation? Well, first of all, thank God that our salvation is not dependent upon what we know. We can all be very thankful for that. But they they were faithful, they were devout, But. Again, we are part of this 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 unveiling of Hashem's understanding as we get closer to that time of the coming of the kingdom. So, the work of first Roots fits into that, and that's the wider context that I would like to kind of start out with. So, you know, it started with the resurrection of of the of a Jew um, who had done miracles, who had his disciples had proclaimed him as Messiah, but the resurrection from the dead was really the 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 cornerstone to that authentication that he was the chosen one of Hashem that he was the resurrected Messiah Uh, his early Jewish followers the early disciples upon the resurrection and the revelation of of the Messiah uh, being directly connected to his teachings they did not leave the synagogue They continued to practice as faithful jews as devout followers of of the messiah but also devout uh, keepers of the torah Uh, the book of acts records in acts 21 that the early disciples of yeshua that they were faithful to torah it says actually myriads thousands tens of thousands of jews were faithful to messiah and all of them are zealous for the torah so they did not start a new religion they did not divert from the foundation of torah As that revelation of Messiah grew to the surrounding nations through the work of the apostles, and Gentiles began to leave idolatry and begin to return to monotheism, the the worship of one true God, and that is the God of Israel, in the name of the Messiah by the testimony of the apostles, they also uh, connected as best as they were able in their nations to the Jewish community because now they're following the God of Israel um, as testified by Jewish apostles going to the nations. And they also didn't start a new religion. Um, the, the picture that we get of, of that Gentile community was that they were connected to the Jewish community as they were able, but they also worshiped in the context of their homes that they, uh, they were devout and dedicated to the breaking of bread, to the fellowship of one another and to the teachings of the apostles. So again, they did not start a new religion. They were properly aligned with Israel as Gentile followers of the one true God, the God of Israel. And they proclaimed the name of the Messiah. So replacement theology starts to kind of creep in when Rome comes and sacks Jerusalem, um, tears up the Jewish world, disperses the Jewish people. Um, The synagogue boots out Gentile believers. and it became very difficult to be a Gentile believer at this time because of various politics or anti-Semitism that was raising and to to be one that is saying, I'm devoted to the God of Israel, I'm connected to the Jewish people, all of a sudden put you at odds with the society around you. So from here, uh, replacement theology begins to creep in, and in some ways, a new religion is formed. Um, Christianity hey, Paul, see, begins...
0: See what you're saying, I think, is important. I mean... Uh, Replacement theology is not a new thing. I mean, and that's really important because that's such a huge part of what First Fruit Design is about. But this goes all the way back to the right. first century, right? I mean, that's right. – which I think is just so important. I just want to, like, put an exclamation mark. This is a such an important uh, part of the, the story that it crept yep. in early and often. Yep. Yeah, Yep. Anyway, continue. So yeah. when
3: we, so, you know, just to your point, when we talk about replacement theology and the origins of it, it does date back to the earliest time, defining yeah. yourselves against the Jewish people, against the Jewish religion, creating new calendars, creating new structures. And really, uh, at the heart of, of replacement theology is creating a new people of God that he yeah. was done with the Jews and now he's now um, the God of the nation, so to speak, through the work of Messiah and through the testimony of Paul and all of this type of stuff. So, um, and, to, and and since it does date back so far, we can really say that replacement theology is systemic within Christian theology, that it's embedded deep into its foundations. It's not just something that's been layered on, it's really at the core of, of where it all started. So throughout time, more and more layers of not only replacement theology, but then we start to see antisemitism rise up. Um, and this is really where on a theological level, it's, it's, it's one thing, but now we're talking about a social level in which the Jewish people began to be persecuted in the name of Christ, in the name of Jesus throughout the centuries, blood libels, crusades, pogroms, um, it it almost was like um, a, a badge of honor for some, not all, for some Christians to persecute Jewish people because they were the they were rumored to be the Christ killers, and if they killed Christ, then let's subject them to pain, to death, to hardship, and those types of things. So. You know, at this point in history, the Jewish context and meaning of the gospel and the teachings of Jesus and the teachings of the apostles lost all of their gospel context, completely separated from the Jewish people. But then uh, the light of Hashem, the eyes of redemption began to open. Um, And in the 19th century, we had some Orthodox Jewish uh, men that miraculously came to faith. Um, We're talking, uh, just uh, to name some of them, Biesenthal, Yechiel Lichtenstein, Isaac Lichtenstein, not related, Paul Levertov, uh, Theopolis Lucky, Avram Polyak. These men came to faith as observant Jews and did not submit to the trend to go to the church and leave Judaism, but rather they began to intensely look at the New Testament the teachings of Jesus, and restore them back to a Jewish understanding. So when we're talking about the origins of the modern-day Messianic Jewish movement, and we're talking about the origins even of the work of First Roots of Zion, it really is on the shoulders of these brave Jewish men that did not succumb to the pressure, returned to the church, but rather said, as Jews were this is how we're reading the New Testament and they wrote in Hebrew and Bulgarian and Russian and Hebrew and other languages
0: Hey Boas I just wanted to highlight too that we've tried as an organization First Fruits to capture some of these stories in our Messianic Luminary series that's that's available you know on our our web our website but I think these stories I'm so glad you took the the time to give that foundation and and the shoulders we stand on and I think it's just very important for those that are interested or involved in the Messianic Jewish movement and teaching or Christians who are involved in, you know, interested in Messianic Jewish teaching to know about these stories and even read the story of Brahm, Abram Polyak, and Lichtenstein. And uh, I'm just very grateful that that's been a labor of love uh, for, for us to capture those stories, write them down and make them available. And, um, you know, it's, it's very meaningful to me um, as, as being involved in the movement. So anyway, just wanted to say that real
3: quick before you go into, uh, just the specifics of FFOZ. Yeah, I agree. And thank you for mentioning that. They, they are our luminaries. They are the foundation in which we stand and it is a labor of love. I mean, we have, as an organization, we've invested a tremendous amount to not only translate their works, uh, to collect their works is is, is a, a job in and of itself. Just finding their works, translating them, bringing, bringing them to publication is, um, it's an honor for us to do that. Um, so they're really the foundation of the modern day Messianic Jewish movement. And then we enter into the 20th century. So we have World War II, the Holocaust, um, the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which uh, was a miracle in itself. Um, and. The what it represented. It wasn't just representing a discovery of something old, but it was like a statement that was being made in terms of like, God's not finished with the Jewish people and the prophecies of Isaiah through the Isaiah scroll are coming alive. And then we have the the rebirth of the state of Israel um, and the miracles from Zion, the war of independence, the six-day war, the Yom Kippur war. And these wars and the reestablishment of the state of Israel was like, this shot over the bow of saying God is not done with the Jewish people. He's being faithful to his promises to restore the land, to restore his people back to the land. And we see miracle after miracle after miracle taking place in this restoration, which, you know, most modern scholars that have a kingdom perspective sit back and say that this rebirth of the land of Israel is not redemption, but it's the first sign, the first blossoming of redemption. It's a physical sign of that God is slowly working through time to reveal um, his promises and to ultimately bring redemption to the Jewish people and through his redemption of the Jewish people, ultimately redemption to all nations. So there's a significant theological shift that begins to take place. Um, Christian scholars, religious Zionists, um, even the Vatican, even Catholicism through the, the Declaration, through the Vatican uh, II Declaration, begins to remove uh, the idea of replacement theology. Then you have a whole host of Jewish scholars, so these are non-Messianic Jewish scholars um, at Hebrew University that really begin to do some hard work, not emotionally like attached, but just doing the hard work of looking at the new testament of the gospels and restoring a jewish reading of the new testament back and their work was phenomenal so probably the the top name in that in that era so this is dating back to the 60s and 70s was a professor by the name of dr david flusser um, and shmuel safrai and others from those from the work at hebrew university and through their reinvestigation of the New Testament from a Jewish perspective, you start to have Christian students come and learn from them and learn the Bible from a Jewish perspective. Brad Young, um, Marvin Wilson, David Biven, and many others. And from their work, they began then to uh, write. Marvin Wilson wrote a fabulous book on the history of how the church separated from its Jewish foundations called Our Father Abraham. Uh, David Biven wrote. A series of books, uh, probably one of his most popular books that was so critical called uh, Understanding the Difficult Words of Jesus, which took this Hebrew idiomatic language that's in the New Testament, put it back into or went to its Jewish source, got the proper Jewish contextual meaning, bring it brings it back into the New Testament. And all of a sudden the New Testament starts to come alive with new meaning that makes sense in the context and all of these phrases and terminology that had been lost because they weren't being interpreted from a Jewish perspective start to just give new life to the, to the reading of the New Testament. So now we're journeying into the, into the 80s, 1980s. And there was a gentleman by the name of um, Dwight Pryor And Dwight Pryor really, I would say, was the voice um, and kind of the linchpin figure in early Jewish roots announcements to broader Christianity. His work was really fundamental. Now, Dwight Pryor was um, a great scholar, a great communicator, soft-spoken, incredibly humble um, in his his stature, but he also was very physically frail. Um, he suffered greatly with arthritis, so his hands were knotted up. He walked with a limp. He stood at an angle, um, and he was just. He, I felt that he was just the right voice because, because of his physical nature, he he came across non-threatening. He could say strong things, um, to and 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 cutting things that really began to cause people to think, and it didn't come across. It didn't come across offensive. And I think a lot of that was due to his his physical nature. So this is where we connect to the story of and the origins of First Roots of Zion. <clears throat> and again, I just wanna reiterate that that we're standing on the shoulders of great scholars and thinkers. Dwight Pryor, other Jewish roots teachers, David Flusser, the work at Hebrew University. We're, we're standing on the shoulders of God's miracles. Uh, for, on behalf of the Jewish people. And even dating back to the 19th century, we're, da- we're standing on the shoulders of these great Jewish men that came to faith and had the boldness and the clarity to begin to stand for a Jewish reading of the New Testament. So here we have Dwight Pryor. Um, my wife and I were involved in a Messianic Jewish congregation. Um, we were thriving and growing and, and loving our, um, our community. We wanted to see our community grow. We wanted um, some of the things that we were experiencing um, to, for others to experience. So we, uh, we thought about uh, s- scheduling a series of conferences for Dwight Pryor and bringing Dwight Pryor to, at the time, we were living in Denver, Colorado. Guys, we're in the 90s now. I just want to give people yep. a sense of the timing here. Early nineties or right? early nineties. Yep. Okay. Nice. Early nineties. Yep. So we're so now we're in the early nineties. We we want to bring Dwight Pryor to Denver to uh, do a series of lectures. At that by that time, Dwight Pryor had become um, essentially my teacher. He was my mentor to um, I I gleaned from every word that he shared. I I, I studied his demeanor. I I tried to to really um, emulate him in many ways. Um and you know he had done so, he had done teachings that impacted me so greatly. Probably, probably the teaching I could I could name dozens, but probably the teaching that impacted me so greatly was a teaching in which he titled um, "Study is the highest form of worship," and this really set me as a young man in understanding, dedicating myself to the study of the Word of God, to understanding the Word of God, seeking God's face, trying to understand the ways of Hashem. All of that is actually a form of worship. And not only is it a form of worship, it's the highest form of worship. It's the highest form of attempting to understand and demonstrate God's demonstrating to God that we are seeking his face. We want to understand and want to know. So we wanted to bring Dwight to Denver, Colorado for a series of of conferences at the time I was working, this is when I was still trying to figure out my career, my core, my core giftings and my core competency is in the area of design. I'm a creative thinker, um, probably have some marketing components and those types of things. And that was the career that I was developing. I was right on the edge of the technology changing from in design from a mechanical process to a digital process. So I was, I probably had version one of Adobe, PageMaker and other things. I mean, it was, you know, uh, just right at that transition. Of that is going back. <laughs> it is. I haven't even heard of PageMaker. <laughs> right. And I'm, I'm also in the, divine, the
1: design field. I haven't heard of PageMaker.
3: <laughs> yeah. Well, you can Google it after. That's great. Um, <laughs> okay. So uh, I put together an advertisement for Dwight. Um, and I took it to the local Christian newspaper in the Denver area and asked them to run the advertisement. Um, I would pay for an advertisement, and they ultimately rejected the ad. They said that they they said that the ad they don't know of this whole Jewish roots of the Christian faith thing. Now this is thirty years ago. Things have changed in Christianity, where the awareness of the Jewish reading of the Bible has has percolated up to where I think most Christians will recognize that idea. But back then, thirty years ago, it was a brand new idea. So they rejected the ad. They said, we don't know about Dwight Pryor. We don't know about the Jewish roots of the faith. We don't know if this is evangelical. We don't know if we want to promote this into the Denver Christian community because it may not be sound doctrine. So they rejected the ad. And I left there disappointed but emboldened. This is when my wife and I were in our early 20s. Um, I actually call this the rebellious phase of my life. Um, So I became emboldened and I said, if they're not gonna run our advertisement in their newspaper, then we'll print our own newspaper and run the advertisement. And it was only intended to be a a one-time print, but we wanted it to look official. So we threw together an eight-page newspaper. Um, We threw some articles in there by Dwight Pryor, It was just prior to Shavuot of 1992, so we did some teachings on Pentecost from a Jewish perspective. We put in place some recipes. We talked about the holiday. So we tried to make it look official, but was only intended to be printed one time for the purpose of promoting Dwight Pryor. That was it. We printed 800 copies of it. Uh, we took it all over the Denver area, and everywhere that the Rocky Mountain Christian News was being distributed for free, we would take a stack of our papers and just put it right next to it <laughs> throughout the Denver area. And um, Dwight came. He had a successful seminar. We were happy that we were able to promote this great teacher. We felt like he accomplished the goal of promoting his ideas into the wider Christian audience of the Denver area. And we were done, um, so to speak, or at least we thought we were done. We had accomplished our goal. But then things began to rapidly change. Over the next 18 months, our life was full of miracle after miracle, um, a sense of Hashem's presence, a a sense of every door opening for us before we even knew that the door was there. And over the next 18 months, our life would become defined in terms of our life mission and purpose and calling. So shortly after Dwight left, we started receiving uh, subscription requests to our newspaper that we had only intended to to, uh, publish one time. Then it started growing. We had put our home address in the newspaper because we didn't have a PO box, but we wanted to look official. So we had our home address, our home phone number. Started receiving rescript- uh, subscription requests from the throughout Colorado, the surrounding states, and then throughout all of um, America, throughout all the states. Every day, it was like a joy to go to the post, to, to go to the mailbox, and just see new letters coming from a different part of the country. And it was remarkable to us. So we decided to continue to publish this newspaper. And it was, at time, it was at the time, it was not intended to be a ministry. It was, it was more like a hobby. It was more like, well, if people are interested, we have ideas that we want to share. So let's just keep just pumping these ideas out there, and I'll keep trying to figure out what I'm going to do in life and go from there. Now, this is where our life began to change in the sense of, of a spiritual calling, in a sense of mission and purpose. So we're moving from a hobby to a really a deep level of impression that we have a, a calling on our life. So we start receiving these subscriptions, and all of them said the same thing. They all said, essentially, "Hey, God is doing the same thing in my heart. I, I'm I. This is this is the way I see the Bible. I want to understand the Bible from this way. I want to connect with others that be that are seeing these same things. I want to understand the Torah and the role of Torah in my life. I want to." I want to begin to see the value of Torah, and the role of Torah in my life. So by this time, it was remarkable, because it was like not letters of hundreds, but beginning to be 1000s and people calling and you know, expressing interest. And we had begun to put some commentaries in the Torah commentaries on the parsha in the newspaper newsletter. But it just felt like we could do more with the Torah than what we were doing. So again, at this point, it was still a, a hobby. But we thought, let's start a, a monthly commentary on just specifically the Torah. So in the fall of 1993, the fall of 1993, we started what we called the Torah Club. I can still see myself like designing that first cover and those first pages and all of that It was remarkable to look back and to see that in my mind's eye. But uh, so we started the, the Torah Club. And at that point, we still were kind of like, this is just fun. People are interested. It's just an expression of what we're already doing. But then we got a letter, a postcard from Japan shortly after that, a few weeks, maybe a month after that. And when we got the letter from Japan of a person saying, God's doing this in my heart, I want to understand the Bible from this perspective, can I subscribe to your publication, it was just a heavy impression came upon my wife and I that that this is something that we should be taking more seriously, that this is something that God is using us and shaping our lives in this direction, So we really began to pray and think about our life, our life purpose, our life calling. And as we began to pray, we came across this text in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 2, verse 3. It says, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the Torah and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And again, another heavy impression. When we read this text, it was like, it was a weight that was on our shoulders. Somehow we felt like this verse represented our life calling. And it was, you know, as we reflected upon it, this text actually represents a future time. It's something that has not yet occurred. It's representing a time in which King Messiah is ruling and reigning from Jerusalem. All nations are streaming up to Jerusalem, um, seeking the wisdom of the Jewish Messiah and seeking to understand the Torah that they may walk in faithfulness. So this is yet to occur, but what was remarkable 30 years ago is that we already saw this happening in some early form. We already saw people turning their hearts back to Jerusalem, seeking the wisdom of the Jewish Messiah, and appealing to understand the ways of Torah that they may walk in faithfulness. So from this verse, as we meditated and prayed upon it, came the name first fruits of Zion. That what we were seeing back then were the first fruits of the, the fulfillment of this future prophecy. So the first fruits are, um, on an agricultural sense, they are a representative, in a biblical context, they are representative of a future harvest. They are like a promise of what is to come. We offer up the first fruits and our harvest is blessed in terms of um, being able to to gather everything and to experience a full and complete harvest. So the first fruits are representative of a promise of what is to come. The first fruits are the promise of a greatest greater harvest. So we called the organization First Fruits of Zion because we felt that what we were seeing was a, prof- a an early form of a prophetic fulfillment of this verse. Now when we had this impression, we also felt, at least I felt, that my role in the organization would not be as a primary teacher, um, that there would be many other teachers, my role would be more of like a support, a facilitator, an organizer, you know, I would, Hashem would use my talents in terms of design and those types of things to facilitate uh, the word going forth. Uh, from at that time, the word going forth from Denver. <laughs> now, this is where it starts. Like this is where it's the accelerator hits, the, you know, the bottom of the floor, and you, your head gets thrown back a little bit in terms of the story. So it's like all of this stuff is happening so rapidly, um, and we're beginning to kind of see our future in terms of what it is that. We are the first fruits of this prophetic text. That somehow my life purpose would be to support other teachers and to help other people fulfill their calling. That the word of the Lord would go forth ultimately from Zion. Um, We started the Torah Club. We were growing in terms of like our early, early influence. And then a teacher by, or not a a teacher, but a a music artist by the name of Jonathan Sattel. Ruben, do you recognize that name? (laughs) I sure don't. (laughs) All right. Again, another early, early uh, Messianic Jewish recording artist uh, came to Denver and was doing some concerts. My wife and I had uh, two children at the time, and we were sitting in the very back room, not really a part of the whole thing because we were just kind of monitoring and taking care of our children. We didn't want them to disrupt anything. And Jonathan begins to tell a story about how after a recent concert, a Jewish man came up to him that still had the tattoo of the Holocaust um, and Nazi Germany, Germany, the Nazis' imprint on his arm. And this man begins to weep and to say to Jonathan, You know, when I hear your music, I think of Zion. When I hear your music, I think of Israel. When I hear your music, I think what a wonderful place Israel must be. What is it like to live in Israel? And Jonathan said, I don't know, because I live in Florida. And Jonathan uh, gave, he shared, he said, when, when he said, I live in Florida, that the emotional connection between what was happening was broken. And all of a sudden, his work had less credibility in the mind of this uh, man that has suffered so greatly. Now, there's a verse in Psalms that speaks about singing the songs of Zion from a foreign land. How is it possible? And when Jonathan said that, my wife and I are sitting in the back of the room, and all of a sudden, another heavy impression comes upon us. How can we send the word of the Lord, the Torah, forth from Denver? Because prophetically, the word of the Lord is supposed to be sent forth from Zion. So all of a sudden, we're gripped with this sense of that we should be living in Israel and that we should be a part of sending the word forth from Zion. That was a real uh, real moment of truth, huh? It was, and um, so that gripped us. We put out some fleeces to just see if this was something that we are hearing, if this this is such a significant thing that is this impression true? Is this from Hashem? Is this from God? So we put out some fleeces, and I, I want to kind of just jump through this. This will be another podcast in the future, but I'll just say that miracle after miracle Um, Again, door opening before we even knew the door was there. And over the next six months, my wife and I just encountered such a sense of closeness and such a sense of Hashem's presence. And in February of 1994, we moved and immigrated to Israel with our family and began formally the work of First Roots of Zion, that that the word of the Lord would go forth from Zion. So that's... That brings us up to the early like setting of the stage of the work of First Roots of Zion, where the name came from, the prophetic component of it, um, and the importance of it um, in terms of like standing on the shoulders of this continual work of redemption and Hashem revealing things as we get closer to the time of the coming of the kingdom. And it's really a remarkable thing to be a part of and to, to look back and to realize that we had no intentions of starting a ministry, but Hashem had intentions to use us and thrust us into this position.
2: Become an FFOZ friend today and join First Fruits of Zion in restoring the original faith and message of the Jewish Jesus. Sign up now at ffoz.org friends. Centuries of misunderstanding about the Torah, the Jewish people, and the Jewishness of the New Testament obscured the real good news message of the kingdom. Today, a prophetic resurgence of faith is breaking out, and FFOZ Friends are at the forefront of this restoration. Become a friend today at ffoz.org friends.
0: So, Boaz, I know that just hearing that foundation story, even starting the apostles and bringing it up to to really the launching. So now we're at the launch point. But to talk to us a little bit about this kind of. I don't know, discovery or transition phase of, of first fruit design. I do want to get to where we are today. We're, we're going there because things are exploding right now with Torah Club. So I want to get there in a couple minutes, but just, you know, I know again, we could just talk and I think folks are, I'm really enjoying this. I mean, it's, it's just a great story, you know, to, to, to hear how this all happened. And, and I know just for me personally, Boaz, and I, I think Ruben would probably echo this, um, this is this is important because you know we're we're in, we're on this mission together and just hearing how God raised up messianic Judaism messianic Jewish teaching first for design and how you know what we're all a part of in trying to restore the Jewishness of Jesus uh, hearing this story and how God moved miraculously is very meaningful. So go ahead and pivot now for us, kind of these transition years. And then I want to bring things up. Uh, Ruben, I want to talk a little bit about what's happening today.
3: So this is 1994, moving to Israel. Again, things continued to rapidly grow. Um, our, you know, We're sending the word forth from Zion. And we began to run a series of articles in our newspaper at that time um, on the Torah and on the fact that that the work of Christ had not canceled the Torah after a couple years of publishing these articles we put them together and we published our first book and our first book that we published was called Torah rediscovered and this book was 200 pages that essentially said that that the work of Christ on um, the work of the cross did not cancel or change the Torah but that's all it said it just simply established that idea now in all of our journeys, we've come across some of these discoveries that the Sabbath has not been replaced by Sunday, that God's biblical calendar still matters, that the church did not replace Israel, and that the Torah has not been canceled by the work of Christ. Those are big discoveries um, that have to be vetted. They have to be matured. These, these ideas work against thousands of years of, of Christian and church theology. So they have to be understood. I mean, with that one idea in and of itself, that the work of Christ has not done away with the Torah, if that's true, then the Torah is still relevant and applicable to the life of all of God's people. But what does that look like? How does that look for Jews, Gentiles? How do we interpret the Torah, live out the Torah? Do we live it according to rabbinic interpretation, um, historical tradition, uh, Jewish interpretation, uh, Karite tradition? Does every person keep and apply the Torah differently according to their own understanding? What does it look like? And these are certainly all of the different shades of, of interpretation of how to apply the Torah that we've seen over the years. We published this book in uh, 1996. We begin a series of conferences throughout the United States in 1997 called In Jars of Clay. We have a conference in uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul, with probably five, 600 people there. And one person sitting in the audience uh, was a gentleman by the name of Daniel Lancaster. And he sat there as a participant in the venue. And I never met him at that time. I didn't meet him till two or three years later. But he just sat there listening, participating. But he said, as he and I have shared over the years, that at that moment in 1998, he sat there and he said, "I." want to work for that organization. I want to be a part of that mission. Mm-hmm. So uh, I meet Daniel several years later. Uh, he uh, he grew in his own reputation in the Minneapolis area by teaching a very popular and very effective Torah weekly Torah class at a local Lutheran church. Through that, I get to know him And over time, he eventually approaches me and says, hey, I'd like to write a commentary, a Torah Club commentary on the four Gospels. Um, So we agreed in 2002, and he began to write and work for the work of First Roots of Zion at that time. And that really began these years of 2002 to 2017, 18, which I call our years of theological maturity, Um, these were the times in which we took these big ideas that the Torah is not done away with, the church did not replace Israel and all of that and what it ultimately represents and went through cycles of maturing those ideas and having to have them validated from larger uh, voices and the broader community and the struggle of trying to understand those ideas. And several things took place during that era. Again, this is another podcast for us at some point mm-hmm. to really sure. unpack this. But I'll just, I'll summarize it by saying two important things ha- began to really help mature the theology of First Roots Zion. The development of a a a subgroup within the Evangelical Theological Society called the Society for post Supersessionist Christianity that was made up of both Jewish and Christian scholars that really began the hard work of answering the question, has the church replaced Israel? And the answer to these scholars is no. And now they're doing the hard work to really understand what the implications of the gospels and the teachings of the apostles are outside of a replacement theological framework. So their work was very complementary to ours. It was very, um, it, it, it it helped substantiate some of the conclusions that we've come to that we brought a step further in terms of application. Um, and then the second thing was our work with those early Messianic Jewish luminaries. That's when Vine of David really began to do its hard work of taking um these men's work and translating them from their original languages, bringing them into English and giving us the ability to truly stand on their shoulders and to help these to help our theology mature and develop based upon their interpretations. So those two things were really critical, or I'll add a third. The third would be the development of our team at First Roots, or at mm-hmm. least a, a yeah. substantial part of our team, Aaron, E.B., Daniel Lancaster, others that began to really uh, help guide and be very sensitive to, to the leading of the Holy Spirit and to be um, uh, uh, help mature and develop our theology over time. And I, I say um, jokingly, I don't know, it's not funny, it's not a joke, but I say offhandedly at the Shalom tour meetings that if people journeyed with First Roots at any point from the era of, from the time of 2002 to 2017, you saw us um, make mistakes. You saw us announce our mistakes. You saw us take steps back, take steps to the side. All of this is something I never apologize for. I recognize as just our time of maturity. It was our time of 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 going through a process of maturity, and mistakes, um, and and being eager and jumping ahead and all those types of things. That's what maturity does. It just helps you balance out. And understand things uh, properly, and to to be measured, and all those things. So those were our years of, of of maturity. Okay, that awesome stuff. So let's. I want to get kind of into this uh,
0: this next phase now, which we're really currently in. So as of right now, uh, it kind of amazes me every time I I think about this and and even say it. Right now, as we speak, there are over seven hundred fifty Torah clubs throughout the world, um, and this has all happened in less than three years. So so we're in this phase of, of incredible growth and expansion uh, right now as we speak. So what I want you to share with our listeners is tell us a bit about the story because there is a story here um, about really how Torah Club has been transformed from basically a set of commentaries into a worldwide
3: network of small learning communities. Talk to us a little bit about that. Sure. So first of all, these unvetted ideas, just to kind of connect these two eras of time of maturity to growth, I believe that during those eras of time, Hashem was preparing us for growth, for the message to become balanced and settled in order to move effectively into the broader body of Messiah without causing um, division and heartache and frustration. So unvetted ideas, when we're just dropping an idea into people's lives of, hey, the Torah is not done away with, but not having the ability to articulate how that applies, what that looks like, how it functions, all those types of things brings nothing but confusion and destruction and disappointment. Um, And really, you could look back over time and see how that has kind of been a testimony of the early Messianic Jewish movement is, is taking these unvetted ideas and dropping them and then just saying, you know, hey, you know, Christ didn't do away with the Torah. We should be keeping Torah. But what does that mean? What does that look like? So as we settled on those ideas, um, two critical things took place in terms of moving Torah Club from a set of commentaries, a set of books to a dynamic rapidly growing small group network of communities of peoples and communities of disciples that are learning and growing and fellowshipping with one another and getting you know deep into the word of God and understanding their faith from these perspectives. The first was my wife and I traveled back from Jerusalem to the States. And when we were in the States, we had a coffee with a friend that had been with our work from 1992. We go have a coffee at their house. Uh, We're getting ready to leave. We're walking out the front door. We're halfway out the front door. And she starts to kind of scream with joy and clap her hands and got our attention and said, hey, wait, before you leave, I want you to come upstairs and look at my Torah club room. Now, we had never been in a Torah club room before, so it was kind of intriguing to us. So we said, sure, we'll take the time. Let's go (laughs) check out the room. We go upstairs to this Torah club room. And on all three sh- walls of the, the room were bookshelves from floor to ceiling. And it had every commentary that we had written on the Torah since 1993, every volume, every edition on all of these shelves, just this massive amount of, of our work and the collection of our work in the Torah club throughout a 25-year period of time. And it was, it was remarkable to see it all. So in this room there was these bookshelves on all three walls and one lazy boy chair. And as we left and we're driving down the road we're certainly reflecting upon seeing all of this work but I I'm I'm like fixated on this single lazy boy chair and I'm thinking what does she do just go into the room and pull a book off the shelf and kick back in a chair and you know read a commentary and put it back up on the shelf and And go about her life. It just felt like all that work was not reaching its potential. It was just books on shelves, commentaries, commentary after commentary. So we get on a flight, we go back home to Jerusalem, and uh, a guest is coming from the united states and they want to meet us at the brahm center which is our messianic jewish learning center in jerusalem they want to see the brahm center they want to meet us they're somehow t- they're they're connected to our work in some capacity we've never met this individual before she walks in the door and she says hi my name is d alberti i'm a precept bible study group leader from baton rouge louisiana and when she said that, her name starts just ricocheting around in my brain. We have a great meeting. She goes about her day and goes visits Israel and goes, have, goes to have a falafel or something. But I'm sitting there thinking this woman has such a sense of purpose and mission in life as a Bible study group leader in Baton Rouge that she's now connected it as part of her introduction and name. It's part of her identity that she Mm -hmm. feels that God is using her in this capacity to bring people into understanding the Bible from this perspective. Mm -hmm. Now, I'd just gone to the Torah club room with one lazy boy chair, and then I'm meeting this dynamic woman who's effectively has a, a calling of God, a mission from Hashem in Baton Rouge just to lead people through a precept Bible study group, you know, study. So I really began, I mean, those two things were what Hashem used to really begin for me to think about how the Torah club was, was functioning. So I spend a few weeks, I come up with these ideas. I start thinking of, you know, things like Torah club is no longer going to be about books. It's about small groups. We're no longer going to be investing in creating commentaries. We're going to be investing into leaders, all of this type of stuff. I call up uh, Daniel Lancaster and I say, Dan, hey, we, uh, I have this idea. We, I want to change the way we do everything. I want to change tour club and I want to refocus our efforts on building small communities. And his response to me was, he said, he said, why would we do something that we failed at twice already? And he wasn't entertaining my idea. He wasn't compelled by the story. Because he had known that in the past, when we had attempted to fulfill that early vision of the meaning of first fruits design, that we would be supporting others, that we would be helping others do the work of God in their communities, in the past two other times we had attempted to set in place a leadership network utilizing our highest program. And both times we failed. Both times we didn't have the ability to manage it. We didn't have the infrastructure in place to govern it. We didn't have the leadership in place to help other leaders lead. So he said, hey, I don't, I'm not interested. We've already failed at this twice. Let's just keep going status quo. I pressed on and we finally agreed. I flew to Chicago and Daniel and I um, and another friend went and sat in a hotel in Chicago for uh, three days and sat there and worked out what the new Torah Club would look like and what the new Torah Club would be. And we came away excited about what what God was going to do through the Torah club, but we, had, we, had, we, had, we were very cautious in terms of our expectations. We thought that maybe year one, we might have 30 to 50 leaders. Year two, we might have 50 to 70 leaders. And year three, we might have 70 to 100 leaders. We had no idea in terms of like the interest. We had no idea about our ability to, to, to manage it properly. So this is when Hashem begins to expand our team again. Because we put the majority of our focus on creating an infrastructure that would support a Torah Club network. And Ryan Lambert and Damien Eisner and others began to kind of form and shape this Torah Club management and oversight team. So we put in place the team. We we knew we had the content in terms of the value of the, the Torah Club material. And we started Torah Club three years ago. And our growth has been exponential, and it's exciting. Um, And we've grown uh, on average at a pace of about 30%. And right now we have um, 750 tour clubs around the world. We have tour clubs um, all throughout Europe. We have tour clubs in small islands like Cyprus. We have tour club taking root in countries like South Korea. We have uh, tour club in Australia, New Zealand, um, uh, Taiwan, And we have 650 Torah clubs throughout the United States. And when you look at the map of the United States of our Torah clubs, Torah clubs are everywhere. Mm -hmm. They're in rural parts of the United States, and they are in major cities. And when you look at major cities, you start to see a footprint being created. Like you can look at any major city, but what comes to mind is Kansas City or Minneapolis or Dallas or even Los Angeles. And you see in these cities – 12, 18, 20 Torah clubs within that city, you realize that a process is taking place of growth that will bring normalization, that will move our message from the fringe and the margins to the mainstream and really begin to make an, an impression that creates momentum of bringing more people into this understanding. So that's where we're at in terms of our current growth. And it's, 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 you know, we've been on this Shalom tour, and the quality of our leaders, the quality of our clubs are remarkable. And they speak to the future of Torah Club in terms of its continual growth and impact in all of these parts of the world. That the word now is going forth from Zion, it's filling up the world. And one of the exciting things to me is the impression that this is going to make on the Jewish people. Mm-hmm when they see the Torah going forth from Zion in the name of Yeshua, studied by disciples of Yeshua all over the world and all over the globe. So we feel that we're on pace to confidently say that over the next seven to 10 years, if we maintain our current growth rate, which is happening organically, um, that we'll have close to 10,000 Torah clubs. And in 10 years, when you envision that in your mind, It's significant in terms of the impact it's going to make in terms of the impression of Yeshua amongst the Jewish people, but also the impact that it's going to make in the church in terms of a statement of saying, these are disciples that have repudiated replacement theology, that have turned their hearts back to Jerusalem. So the fulfillment of Isaiah 2, 3, seeking the wisdom of the Jewish Messiah and seeking the way that they may walk in faithfulness. Now... To me, this is important because it's not only a matter of being a firstfruits of this future harvest, this firstfruits of this prophecy. But in reality, by people living out those prophetic texts now that are intended to speak of the future, in reality, they're actually bringing that future into the world today. So just as Yeshua brought and did miracles, bringing glimpses of the kingdom into the world today, by people doing these prophetic things now, they're actually revealing the kingdom today. They're building the kingdom today. So I like to look at our Torah Club leaders and our Torah Club members and our First Fruits of Zion friends as not just first fruits of this prophecy, but rather now they are actually kingdom builders, and they're building and revealing the kingdom, preparing the kingdom for the world to go forth from Zion.
1: Yeah, it's absolutely incredible. Honestly, having been a constituent with First Roots for I don't know, probably about two thousand six, and having those original Tour Club commentary sets that were in the binders, some of our constituents, some of our listeners may remember those. But um, just to see where it's grown and and see where where it's headed is incredible. And you actually did answer one of the questions that I had um, about you know sort of the the vision of of Tour Club, what you see. Uh, you know, the hope for in the future and, 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 you know, but if there's anything else that you could say about that, what, you know, what would you say is the goal of tour
3: club from here on
1: out?
3: So, you know, I told you that one of the inspirational teachings that Dwight Pryor did for, in my life as a young man, is he talked about study as the highest form of worship. Learning is the foundation to proper discipleship. You know, when we, when we, um, When we understand Matthew 28 in terms of making disciples, it's not about making converts. It's about making disciples. And a disciple is a person who memorizes their teacher's words, repeats his words to others, imitates their rabbi's actions, and makes more disciples for their rabbi. That's biblical, contextual uh, discipleship. So the Torah Club's tagline is where disciples learn, because learning is the foundation to proper discipleship. So I would love to see Torah Club not only grow in terms of its footprint, but I'm excited about seeing disciples learn the Word of God that and it renews the joy of their salvation. It makes them passionate for the Word of God. It causes them to be zealous for holy living and zealous for the kingdom. So it's it's not just a matter of growing our numbers of clubs, it's a matter of strengthening. Um, people's lives. And, and, And frankly, and I know that this is not the topic of this podcast, but Christians moving forward with facing all of the various social and cultural issues from the world around it, the church desperately needs the foundation of Torah. It needs to understand right and wrong and clean and unclean and holy and unholy. So the Torah club is the place in which those things will be taught. And not only will they be taught, but the beauty of removing or changing the Torah club from a series of books into a community, a small group fellowship, is that those ideals will be affirmed by other people, that families can get together and begin to learn these things and strengthen one another. Um, So relationship and creating a social context and a social community for these values to be nurtured, to be affirmed is critical. So I'm excited about the maturity that we're gonna see in disciples over the years, how the renewing of the joy of their salvation, a love for the word of God. Um, and of course, an increase in footprint is gonna be something thats that we're looking forward to over the next 10 years. Hey, Boaz. Um... We're going
0: to have you back on to 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 dig in deeper to some of the details of this story, so because uh, there's just so many so many areas here I wanted to press into, but uh, this is just kind of a you know just an initial conversation about the the origins of of first fruits. But I want to um, first of all, I want to thank you for for being with us. I know you are pounding it with the uh, the Shalom tour, 61 cities uh, over, over a three month period, a lot of driving. And so to, to take this time, uh, this morning, uh, here in Atlanta, uh, I, I really appreciate. Um, one of the things that, that has just been a joy for me, uh, at being a part of that process, uh, of, of seeing tour, the new tour club over the last three years grow and develop and, and, uh, and, and really us, us building it together as a, as a team has been that, you know, we, we've, we've, created that structure in such a way that you don't have to be a gifted teacher you don't have to be an exceptional you know uh, a speaker in order to lead a torah club Uh, torah club is made up of men women just you know christians messianics Uh, you know one of the things i am so grateful for is the incredible diversity in torah club uh geographical theological cultural Diversity and and that's a beautiful thing. So um, we've we've really uh, on the one hand there are high standards to be a Torah club leader, and we want to make sure that our Torah club leaders are aligned with us missionally because uh, they really are representing First Fruit Design as Torah club leaders. But um, but on the other hand, it's it's fairly easy because we we do the teaching and, and create a structure that makes it easy to start a club. So. Would you just kind of finish up here by by telling our listeners what they can do, uh, and how would you encourage them if they're interested in starting a Torah Club or joining one as a student? How do they go about that?
3: Well, I think it's important, and I, I appreciated your reminder that there is this is a mission. We do view Torah Club leaders as an extension of our teaching ministry. That as the word goes forth from Zion, that they are that they are fulfilling not only their life purpose in the city or the state in which Hashem has placed them, and there being a point of light and learning in that location, but it's fulfilling this greater call of the word going forth from Zion. So they are an extension of our teaching ministry. So missional alignment is critical, and there is some boundary set on that in terms of the type of leaders we're looking for. We want them to align with our theological statements and be part of our mission and see that they are... um, in alignment with our culture. And it's been such an amazing thing to meet all of these Torah club leaders. They're just right in line with that. And this mission for us has been one of stewardship as well, just to go out and see the Torah clubs. And we're just overwhelmed with the strength of our leaders. Um, but on a practical level, just I would just point people to the website, uh, toraclub.org. There's a button that says, you know, start a club and it'll start taking you through that process and explaining you uh, explaining to individuals about the process involved. And if people don't feel called to start a club and they would like to join a Torah club, then there's a simple process for that as well. Um, and we're excited to see Hashem bring more people into our family and to our community and our our tribe. It's a, it's, a, it's full of, you know, wonderful, dynamic, and like-minded people.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. Well, I, again, Boaz, we really appreciate you joining us. We're praying for you and Amber on the road for the Shalom Tour. And hearing about the miraculous story of First Roots Design has been such a huge blessing for me. And I can only hope that it, it blesses other people
3: listening. So thanks again. Really appreciate you. So it's been an honor to be here. A blessing. Thank you.
1: Hey Ryan, so that was that was incredible. Um, I, I'm I kind of view myself as kind of a fanboy, which is weird <laughs> because I because I'm employed by First Fruits, but I am I am very much still um, you know, I look at at Boaz and Daniel and yourself and Damien and and Aaron as spiritual heroes in a way. And Boaz has has kind of reinforced that, you know, First Fruits is really putting a voice First root Design is really putting a voice to what people are experiencing uh, and that they themselves are not responsible uh, for what's happening, but rather it's the move of Hashem. And I think that's an important um, sort of takeaway from this. But but yeah, it's it's really incredible for me to kind of hear about this and and to understand. I have a lot of technical uh, questions, too, that I'm, I'm like, oh, you know, how did they print those early uh, newsletters? <laughs> like, and so I was really right. curious about that. Uh, but yeah, what what were your takeaways from it? Oh man, uh, the first of all, I I enjoyed it like you did, and and like you,
0: you know, look before I came to work for First Fruit Design in 2015, I was a fan, and I was just somebody who was heavily influenced by First Fruits, and so. Um, you know, in a, in a sense, even the my first the team the guys you just mentioned they're my dear friends. But I also just learn from them every day. So it's a it's a really neat environment. But just you know, I guess some yeah. of the takeaways from from Boaz's uh, what, what he had to share. Uh, I've got two two thoughts that that emerge uh, that I, that I'll share. Although my list is very long as far as things that that came up in my mind. Uh, first of all, Torah Club. It's it, what he said about Torah Club. Uh, you know, it's it's about people. And, and it's about, it's no longer about books on a shelf. It's about people who want to impact the kingdom of God, uh, by, by helping people to, to explore and discover and learn about Yeshua, Jesus from a Jewish perspective and to learn the Torah and how that affects us on the ground as disciples. And that's what's happening. And, and it's very, very, very exciting, uh, to, 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 see that happening around the world with Torah club leaders and students. Um, I also thought what Boaz said was was so, so very important about how, uh, first, the work of First Fruits design Zion, the broader Messianic movement, uh, Messianic Jewish teaching, but, you know, I'm going to just, I'll kind of bring it back to just what First Fruits design Zion doing, is it, is it really, in many ways, it's changing the narrative. Uh, in the Jewish community, Boaz focused kind of uh, on that in his statement, but um, also in the Christian community regarding how people understand um, the relationship between the role of the Torah and the disciples of Jesus. And that narrative is shifting to where now, um, you know, Christian people are saying that Christians, uh, the, the work of Torah Club and First Fruits is, is contributing to the idea that cr- there are Christians who love the Torah because of Jesus and because That's of Torah right. and not despite them so that is that's no right. longer this sort of that the, you know and again that's a slow process as we're having to change two thousand years of history and theology and, and and so forth and and it is a bit of an uphill battle but uh, i'm grateful to be a part of that and and that shift is happening to where the perspective and the narrative is shifting because that in our you know that what we're persuaded of is that is the real jesus that is the real paul that that's these right. things work together uh, as opposed to super session replacing each other. So um, yeah, those were a few takeaways from me but uh, how, how about you especially for you as a Torah club leader, um, you know what did, what did Boaz share? Uh, how did what he share I guess affect your sense of maybe mission and, and purpose?
1: Yeah, so it, it is interesting, especially with what you're saying there because we're seeing um, across uh, really the whole world, People coming to this movement of their own accord—it's—it's it's fascinating. When I talk to people and I, uh, you know, ask them, I, "How did you hear about Messianic Judaism? What is what's brought you to Torah Club?" You know, these types of questions, and I, I'm getting the same thing, which is somebody—I heard something, a question that sparked something in my mind. I'm, I've been a Christian all my life, and I hear this question, I didn't really quite understand. You know, did Jesus do away with the Torah, whatever the mm-hmm. question was, and they're coming to this which I can only say is a move of, of the Holy Spirit, I mean, uh, in a global sense. And we have tour club students from all ages. Uh, we have teenagers in our club and we have uh, older ladies in our club that are fantastic and hungry. And I think they're really behind this sense of what Boaz was saying, which was that, you know, the idea that, study is the highest form of worship. And I think that's a huge paradigm shift that's occurring in mm-hmm. people that are used to going yeah. to a Sunday church and, and, you know, having a worship set. And, and while that's all great, there is this idea that as we study, we learn and we grow closer to Hashem because we learn about Him. We learn uh, and, 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 and follow through with that. So it is an incredible uh, sort of responsibility that we have as Torah Club leaders, but it's also incredibly rewarding as we see people Uh, in all ages, all stages of life, um, growing closer to this message and this kingdom, this kingdom message. um, And it's fascinating. So I'm just blown away. I'm very privileged to be a part of it. Yeah. Awesome.
0: Hey, uh, great stuff. Well, this has been a very encouraging time. Boaz's story uh, is, is of course, very important. And uh, God is really working uh, and moving in powerful ways uh, through First Fruit Design and Torah Club. And and I loved how Boaz communicated that it's the people who are yeah. connected to our mission and, and not necessarily even First Fruit Designs, the people right. who are connected right. to this mission who are fulfilling Isaiah's uh, prophetic vision. And I know myself and you and 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 many of our listeners are, are honored to be a part
1: of it. For sure. For sure. Well, that's it for today. Uh, shalom to you all. and We'll see you next time. Shalom, shalom.
0: Thanks for joining us for this episode of Messiah Podcast, where Jesus is Jewish and that changes everything. This podcast is an extension of Messiah Magazine available at messiahmagazine.org. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe and leave a review along with a five-star rating wherever you're listening now. Today's podcast was hosted by myself, Ryan Lambert, along with Ruben Ramos. Our executive producer is Boaz Michael and the editor-in-chief is Daniel Lancaster. This episode was directed and edited by Jeremy Schoenwald. Original music was written and performed by Joshua Aaron. And the show notes for Messiah and Podcast were edited by Candy Bishop and are available at messiahpodcast.org. If you're interested in learning more about the Bible from a Messianic Jewish perspective, check out Torah Club which is an international network of small study groups who meet weekly to study the Bible together from a Messianic Jewish perspective. To start a club or join a club, go to TorahClub.org. Until next time, shalom. Let his word cover you
1: and me Like the waters cover the sea Let His love cover you and me. Let like the waters cover the, cover the sea. sea.